Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Did you know there are some 7,000 languages spoken around the world? Most people only speak one, but over four out of every 10 people speak at least two. While bilingualism may be a necessity in some countries, the ability to speak more than one language does come with other benefits. In fact, there's probably more than you might think. And the best part? The languages don't have to be conventional to make a difference. This week, we're going to translate the benefits behind being bilingual. We'll learn about how knowing another language can help us throughout our lifetime and even improve our health as we age. And in our SAS class, we're going to explore how languages are invented and why learning a new one can be athdavrazar. That's Dothraki for awesome. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Techo, and I'm going to increase your interest in learning a new language. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you probably speak English. But how many of you know other languages? For example, what if I said to you, Zdras Vutsie, Kujambo, Anyang Haseho, Tanse, or Me Gavanen? Would you understand me? Well, unless you spoke Russian, Swahili, Korean, Cree, and of course, Sindarin, the language of the elves, you probably wouldn't know that I just said, hello. But I'm sure many of you do speak another language. Depending on your proficiency, you may be able to get by, or you might even be able to mix languages, known as code switching, to make up your own dialect. Knowing two languages provides more than the ability of being able to communicate with people around the world. There are health benefits as well. Our first guest has been examining the effects of bilingualism over our lifespan. Her name is Judith Kroll, and she has been involved in language research for over four decades. Not surprisingly, she currently serves as the director of the Bilingualism Mind and Brain Lab at the University of California, Irvine. As for the benefits, what better place to start than the brain? How does the brain learn a language? Well, there are many answers to that question, but I think that we can start with the littlest babies and look at the amazing research that's been done on what happens even during the first year of life. And Patricia Cole at the University of Washington uh, calls it the linguistic genius of babies because babies who are obviously not verbal, not communicating with people in ways that we normally think of as language, uh, are taking in all of the speech that they are surrounded by. And I note that it's not just speech. Babies who are born deaf and take in sign language have 
go through very much of the same process. But what we see in hearing babies is that they uh, very, very rapidly uh, begin to tune to the statistical regularities of speech in their environment. And when they're exposed to a single language in a monolingual home, uh, they will become experts at that language. Um, Babies who are exposed to more than one language early on show evidence of a broader tuning in their their brains. Does cognitive ability improve when we are immersed or surrounded by or learn within a second language in addition to our mother tongue? Well, I think that evidence that we we see certainly suggests that that's the case. Um, There's a lot of mythology out there in the public about exposing babies in particular about to more than one language. Many people think they will be confused, that it will uh, disrupt the uh, ordinary and uh, necessary course of language learning. And what we see instead is that it, it seems to expand their horizons. It, it seems to create an openness to speech uh, that is broader and more sensitive to languages in addition to the language that they've been exposed to and possibly to confer benefits to learning more generally. Two languages in one mind and one brain, you necessarily have competition between them. The neuroscience evidence suggests that the two languages sit in the same place in the brain for the most part, that what we see is the same neural tissue that's supporting both. And what we see is that the competition that individuals learning a second language and becoming bilingual have to negotiate uh, ends up producing some very positive consequences. And the claim is that Individuals who finally acquire the ability to use the two languages proficiently and to navigate their way through the potential complexity and competition are, in fact, better able to resolve conflict and competition not only within language but in their cognitive world more generally. For adults who come to second language learning as monolingual speakers of a native language, the assumption has been that that native language is stable. And what we see in the recent work is that, in fact, the native language is quite dynamic and changes in response to exposure to a second language and learning of a second language. Because, in fact, what we come to see is that this is a normal process. This is a process that is that characterizes uh, the way that the two languages come to sit in the same place in your mind and, and brain. Uh, there is a very natural process of acquiring the ability to regulate the native language. And what we mean by that is sometimes you have to actually inhibit the native language to be able to use the second language. You have a strong dominant language, and then you have this other fledgling language that's coming into its own. Take us through the process of code switching so that we have a better understanding as to how we find that balance between the two or more, if it's multilingual, languages. So I think that code switching and and the most uh, interesting type of code switching is where someone is speaking and literally in the middle of a sentence, they will switch languages to another language. 
and the person they're speaking with is typically a bilingual who speaks the same two languages, and they will continue either in the language the person ended in or the other language, and they will go back and forth, what I would call bilingual athleticism, that what we see is that bilinguals are able to not just switch, but the switching is not alternation. It's not just simply, you know, random mixing of the two languages, which bilinguals can sometimes do and has been studied. But what is a very regular patterning where the production of these language switches uh, in the middle of a sentence um, occur in ways that are very much determined by the grammar of the languages. And this is not, it's not random at all. It's quite, quite regular. Researchers would argue that code switching is really at the basis of cognitive advantages that have been observed, and that the ability to be able to switch and anticipate when a switch is coming and seamlessly move into the other language uh, requires uh, recruitment of cognitive and neural resources that may be quite beneficial. We're talking about people who are speaking fluently both languages, but your research Mm -hmm. has suggested that just being exposed to a separate language may also provide yeah. some benefits. So rather right. than being the, the code switcher, you may simply be the observer and, I guess, absorber, and that too can have a right. benefit for you. So can you take us through right. that? I, I, I would be a little bit hesitant about using the word absorber because it sounds very passive to me. Maybe there's something just about hanging out with in an environment that's very diverse that you kind of just passively take it in and it changes what you, you know, what, what you can learn much the way babies would in the studies that I mentioned at the very start of our conversation. Um, however, it's possible that it's not just linguistic diversity. It's possible that it's also uh, cultural diversity. And it's also possible that it's this decision-making we were talking about and talking about code switching. And so it may be that when you navigate your social world and your social networks among people who speak many languages, that you're also making decisions about who you're speaking with, what you're speaking about with each of them. And that, so there may be some more active processes involved. While our brains gain from a second language, there are also social benefits that come along for the ride. Research from Judith Kroll and others have revealed that speaking a second language can help us achieve better academic success. This may help us in our professional development. We may have a better ability to perform multiple tasks, although maybe not at once. But perhaps best of all, knowing two languages may help us to fend off some of the more troubling effects of aging by slowing the symptoms of cognitive decline. Let's start, like many who learn another language, in school. Here in California, there's a lot of interest in how children might be exposed to dual language uh, education. And there's a lot of interest in dual language immersion and, and how there may be benefits associated with dual language immersion, not only for children who come from homes where a language other than English was spoken until they entered school, so 
heritage users of a home language, but also for children coming from homes where uh, there hasn't been a language other than English uh, spoken. And one statistic that you might find interesting from a recent uh, 2017 report from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences uh, on language learning in the 21st century has a statistical report in which they uh, they note that in the United States, over 75% of the people who speak a language other than English have learned that language at home. So most of the bilinguals, the most prototypical bilinguals in the United States are bilinguals who uh, have come from homes where there was a home language other than English, and then they got switched into English when they got to school. So what happens to them at school? And I will say uh, that uh, the situation in Canada is quite different. So the, the situation in the U.S. and the situation in Canada are different in some interesting ways. But you might expect that if you're a child, especially if your parents only speak the home language and are not really proficiently bilingual in English as well, that it would be quite a shock to get to school and then be immersed in English only. And there's been a lot of concern about that, that issue. The recent studies show that having children with that kind of experience go to school, be in uh, dual language immersion context, not only benefits their maintenance of the home language, but it also benefits their learning and literacy skills in English. So contrary to the idea that you want, to, you want your child to get up to speed in English as quickly as possible, what you do is you, you cut off the home language and just expose them to English, the data show that, that the best thing you can do for at least this early academic achievement um, is to have the dual language exposure. What about professionally when we get into the workforce? Can having the ability to speak more than one language help us other than, of course, getting a position where it's part of the job description? Right. I mean, I think that, well, more than just getting a descript, you know, getting a, a position where it's part of the job description, you also have the ability to work in many more places in the world uh, without assuming that English is necessarily the language that's going to be uh, they assumed. I don't think there's been, uh, you know, a, as much uh, investigation of, of just what these consequences are. I think the evidence that we have and the data that are out there uh, suggests that uh, having having knowledge of more than one language is always going to be professionally beneficial. Uh, and, and of course, it goes beyond language because there's also discussion about the extent to which being culturally sensitive being able to uh, go into environments where the culture might be different than the culture that you uh, came from uh, is going to benefit from that. You know, being being uh, being bilingual does not imply that you're bicultural, but it makes it more likely that you're going to be able to acquire um, bicultural skills. What about the idea of multitasking? I, I would say that it's it's mixed. The truth is that bilinguals are in you know, come in many different shapes and sizes, and different uh, come come from very many different contexts. What we see is that bilinguals are very good about coordinating across these different cognitive demands, and and those cognitive demands may 
may vary in in their complexity and in um, in different different ways. Bilinguals are not always going to simply be better at switching, better at, at multitasking, better at competition resolution. Um, they they seem to acquire uh, their life experience and the demands associated with that experience seem to create a change in the way they draw on cognitive and neural resources. What about as we get older and we're faced with cognitive decline? Does bilingualism help us then? I I think the most provocative evidence concerning the consequences of bilingualism uh, concerns aging and and cognitive aging. Uh, And now it's important to be clear, bilingualism does not prevent cognitive aging. It does not prevent dementia. What it seems to do is it seems to modulate the ability to deal with the symptoms of the decline. And so bilinguals appear to have a level of cognitive and neuroprotection by virtue of having juggled the two languages their entire life. And, and what we see at the point where individuals are diagnosed as, as you know, having dementia, that um, not only are the bilinguals older, but their brains are more diseased. And what that means is that they have been doing more with less. And so the idea is that something about the way the two languages are used creates what people have called cognitive and neural reserve. So they, it has created, as, as, a, as it were, it's, it's a little bit like uh, those of us who live in California and get ready of the event that there might be an earthquake and you sort of stockpile things. These bilinguals have, have stockpiled their cognitive resources. They have reserve that enables them to, much the way if someone is healthy and exercises, that they can, they, they can stave off the symptoms of certain physical injury for longer. So these um, older adults are benefit from having from being bilingual, and we see it not only for for uh, older adults who are faced with pathology. Uh, we see it also for healthy older adults. And I'll, I'll note that in the case of pathology, one of the things that's very striking is that we currently do not have drugs to treat dementia very effectively. And experience being bilingual appears to provide four or five years of extra kind of, quote, reasonably healthy time uh, for bilinguals. There's no drug that we know of that can do that. So it's quite a provocative finding. Now that people have heard that, I'm sure they're going to want to learn a second language just simply to help them as they're getting older. Um, If they do want to start, what's the best way to start picking up a second language? I think the, the... there are many ways of doing it, and I think that you know I, I don't think that that any of us can sort of adjudicate the you know the best way is this way or use this particular app or that particular app or this particular class. I think the part of it that we need to recognize is the social part of it, and I think that being among other people who are speaking the language you want to learn is quite critical. You know, you want, you want to be immersed. You want to find ways. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean you travel to the country where that language is spoken, but it might mean that. Um, but it means being immersed among other speakers where you can benefit from 
hearing it, benefit from learning it in a context that's that's socially connected. Um, and I, I would argue that that's probably the the both the most motivating context for new learning um, and the one that's going to be the most successful. And some recent studies have shown that if you teach older adults a whole set of new tasks, new skills, not just language, but other skills as well, that it's language that creates the most dramatic consequences for uh, cognition. So the point is that not only can older adults learn a new language, older adults can benefit from that new learning and show many of these uh, cognitive benefits. It's not necessarily the case that you're going to show it to the same degree if you've been speaking a language for six months or versus someone who's been speaking it for 60 years. Um, but the point is that these experiences are not out of reach for older adults and the benefits associated with them may, may be quite important in terms of future, uh, you know, future learning opportunities to try to have, uh, you know, a healthy, as we have an, we have an aging population and uh, having a healthier aging population uh, is something that we all aspire to. And it may be that language learning may become a very important part of that. It's SAS class time. And today we're going to learn how to invent a language from our guest teacher, David Peterson. If you happen to love Game of Thrones, then you are no doubt familiar with the languages Dothraki and High Valerian. These are just two of the dozens of languages he's constructed over the years. While these languages may not be real, as you're about to find out, for the fans of the fictional world of Essos and other universes such as Star Trek, The 100, and the soon-to-be-released remake of the classic Dune, having these languages in your brain can be handy right here on Earth. What inspired you to enter the realm of language invention? Well, uh, when I was a uh, when I entered college at UC Berkeley, I was studying a number of languages because I wanted to learn as many languages as I could, and there were many many language offerings at Berkeley. Um, so, in my first year, I took two semesters of Arabic, a semester of Russian, and then a semester of Esperanto, which was advertised on my college dorm. Uh, it was a student-taught class by two native speakers of Esperanto. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of somebody uh, inventing a language. I'd never imagined that such a thing could be done. Um, so then semester after that, uh, I took French. But um, I also took a course in linguistics because my mother thought that I'd like it. Uh, and indeed, I did. never imagined that anything like linguistics could exist where you just uh, studied languages abstractly as opposed to studying them to learn them. And about a month or so into that, I think we were studying morphology, uh, and I came up with the idea of inventing my own language. Um, and uh, really, I had no other goal than I thought, uh, you know, Esperanto was for um, international communication, but what if I created a language just for myself, just for fun? And then it wouldn't be competing with Esperanto. And as soon as I thought of that idea, I immediately sat down and started doing it. So I started creating my own language. And really, I just uh, kept up with it after that because uh, it continued to be fun. <laughs> um, but about, I would say about six months later, uh, I found other language creators online. 
And that was when I was introduced to the language creation community. As I studied more linguistics, I studied more languages. And as I um, learned more from the community of language creators, which was uh, really the, the biggest uh, source of inspiration. Let's just start at the beginning, the alphabet. How do you even conceive how a language is going to be built? In linguistics, we have something called the International Phonetic Alphabet, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's an alphabet that's used for all languages all over the world, and uh, it just transcribes sounds directly. Uh, it's, it's what linguists use to write every language. It's really about writing. Uh, it's about deciding uh, which sounds are going to be present in your language and then how those sounds are going to pattern together. Uh, so, for example, like um, in English, at least in my English, we have a sound you know, like T and D, and it sounds like T and D at the beginning of the word or at the end of the word. So, you know, uh, you know Todd and uh, Dot are two examples of how it sounds at the beginning and the end of the word for each one. But in the, in the middle of a word, those sounds are pretty much the same. So whether it's, you know, uh, matter, bottle, middle, um, the sound is identical. Uh, it doesn't matter if it was a T or D originally. It now sounds pretty much like a, like a kind of a flap in, in, um, in English, or at least in my English. And so for those, those are, you know, three separate sounds, right? You know, T and D and then this slappy type of thing. But we think of them as the same sound. Uh, so this, the, the flap one can be either a T or a D. And we don't conceive of it as a third separate sound. It's just something that patterns with either T or D in a very specific position. When you're creating your own language, you do the same thing with sounds. So, for, for example, in English, F and V are different sounds, and they can be used differently. In, in some languages, they aren't. In some languages, they're considered the same sound where you only get F, say, at the beginning of a word, and you only get V uh, in between two vowels, but they're considered to be the same sound. You can do that type of a thing um, and really create any type of a sound pattern you can imagine. Would it be the same then with the grammar? Yeah, you can create your own grammar and do your own things pretty much whenever you want. It's going to be difficult to do something that doesn't exist in one of the world's 7,000 or so languages. Uh, we, we cover a lot of permutations. Um, having said that, though, um, if you understand the, the parameters, I guess, by which languages vary, you can pursue any avenue you want without being specifically influenced by any given language. So, for example, if, uh, if you know about the orderings of subject, object, and verb, and your language supports such notions. So it's, you know, it actually is a, a nominative accusative language and has subjects and objects and so forth. Uh, then uh, logically, there's only six possible orders. You could choose any of those six, and it's going to be whichever one you choose. It's going to be like uh, some language that exists on Earth, but it doesn't mean that you are directly inspired by one of those languages. Uh, it's just that there's a very, very small number of orderings. And so choosing any one of them is bound to be like another natural language. What I find interesting is that sometimes a fictional language becomes more popular than an actual one that happens to be spoken. Klingon 
is probably the perfect example. There are people out there who are bilingual in English and Klingon. Have you spoken to people who speak these particular languages as if they were English, French, German, whatever? And what makes them so interested in not just becoming a part of that language, but also spreading it across the world? I think that constructed languages are pretty much just like any language. There's no difference. The only difference is that with uh, a fictional language, so for example, something like um, something like Klingon, is that uh, within a given fictional context, you're pretending that the language arose naturally and pretending that it has a large speaker community. Uh, those speakers don't, in fact, exist. Uh, but really, I mean, the only difference between something like Klingon and Esperanto is that fiction. Esperanto was also created. Um, but, of course, when it was created, it wasn't like it came with a backstory and said it was spoken by the people of Esperanto land, and there were millions of native speakers. It started out just the same way. It started out as a language that somebody created uh, with no speakers. And now Esperanto has over a million speakers. So there's really no difference between that and, uh, and Klingon um, in terms of you know uh, being a constructed language. Uh, for those that are interested in particular in Klingon, it's usually because they're interested in Star Trek. Uh, uh, one of the shows, one of the movies, all of them, or the universe in general, and the, the fictional speakers of that language, so Klingons. You can sit down and learn it. You can become fluent in it. You can communicate with other people using it. And sometimes it can be handy as an auxiliary language. Uh, in other words, uh, there are Klingon speakers. There are lots of Klingon speakers in the United States. There are also lots of Klingon speakers in Germany, as it turns out. Um, and it, you know, if you have a, a German Klingon speaker and an American Klingon speaker, and the American doesn't happen to speak German, and the German doesn't happen to speak English, but they both speak Klingon. It's an easy way for them to communicate. Well, that's it for this week's Askcast. I hope it has given you the urge to take on a new language. And if you do, as the Klingons would say, Kapla! For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. And if you're finding us today, please check out our other episodes on the need for relevance in education, translating science, which many think is its own language, and I tend to agree, and the evolution of music, also a language. We want to show our gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show, usually as themes. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Super Awesome Science Show.